Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas without overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. So Dr. Jackson, I was wondering, I've been noticing in your posts lately that almost all of your titles are questions. As a po- and so I'm wondering, have you run out of all kinds of answers? Well, so so I, I will start with, it, it, there's, there's three types of people in my universe. There's the uninquisitive, and then there is the people who are question people, and there are people who are answer people. And uh, to me, I am a question person. I, I don't have very many definitive answers. I don't tend to offer people solid solutions. I, I'm much more engaged with these are the types of questions that humanity benefits from asking. So how about you? Yeah, I think it's interesting the question. Yeah, obviously I, I ask a lot of questions and ask people questions, but I feel like I tend to give try to lean more towards answers on some topics. If anyone asks me anything in particular, I'm sort of this him and haw, I think a lot and say, well, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to know the answer to particular things. But I would say in general, I probably try to lean more towards like, at least in the post, providing a perspective and sort of, in my mind, the don't overthink this sort of mindset is just try to put something on the page, which I think you end up doing anyway. You, you have your question title, and then you, you obviously make a statement. It isn't just like, endless questions in, in, in your posts. So anyone who's out there who hasn't read them, it isn't just like endless questioning from Dr. Jackson on your posts. I, I think that I sort of make a point is the nicest thing anybody's ever said about <laughs> any of my writing, Dr. Heath. So so thank you. Well, yeah, I, I think, and I, I know we've talked about that, at least privately, I don't know if we talk about podcasts, but writing every day has, I think, improved my writing. I know you've talked about it improving your writing. And I would say, I think you make more of a point now than you've ever made before in your whole life. How do you feel about that? That is what that is uh, that is sadly true, and and I think it, it reveals more than I wish. So uh, you you put forward um, I think an an interesting comparison against uh, deep expertise and broad experience, and and I think that one could make connections with what we were just talking about and in that area. So what to you is more important, deep expertise or broad experience? Yeah, I go back and forth on that. And in the post, I hit on that. And I think it gets to some of the question answers, as you sort of said, at least for me, I think broad experience is probably more important or more valuable from what I've seen, just because I think it provides more options. Obviously, you can make a huge bet on a deep expert sort of thing, right? And you could be like, I'm going to go deep into, you know, pick any top. It could be golf or it could be, you know, some sort of obscure nuclear physics problem. It could be, you know, anything. And you go super deep into it. And if you become the best of the world and the world values that, then that's fantastic for you. You know, like you, you, you obviously can do a lot with that. There's a lot of opportunities for that. But if you happen to pick wrong, and no one cares about it, or it turns out that there's like 20 other people who are better than you, no matter how much you try, then you're never going to be, you know, you're never going to be able to be on top. And so at least for me, I think the broad experience provides options and is more of a robust like strategy. That being said, you can't be only an inch deep everywhere. Cause then I think you, you, you get, get the other problem where you really actually don't know anything. <laughs> You, you just are, you're all over the place. You can't focus. There's no intentionality there. But if you're broad in an intentional way, 
then there's lots of ways to leverage that into like your next opportunity. If something falls down, you can pivot this direction. If something goes this way, you can do that. But I also think it applies in how we think and explore elements of things and how we understand things. Because if you know lots of different things and lots of different stories or analogies or principles, you can start tying things together in unique ways. And to me, that's uh, valuable uh, and, and interesting. And that's where maybe creative ideas come from. And so I really think if I had to pick one, I'd pick be more broad. But I, as I sort of said in the post, I think I would advocate for something in the middle where for me, it'd be, I'm going to be very broad about, about an application of something specific. So like in this case, analytics, I'm going to be deep on like understanding that, but I want to apply it in lots of different ways. So I have lots of options. Are you a deep or broad person? Well, I mean, I, I'm similar, but, but I, I would, I would maybe parse a distinction that it, it isn't in the middle uh, for me as much as it is an oscillation. So I, I think that, you know, as a metaphor, college education could be a good example. So, you know, to me, starting with a liberal arts education at the undergraduate level provides a, a sort of a broad experience, a lot of exposure to different disciplines, and, and one finds a niche in that area to, to focus upon, and then through graduate school uh, develops a, a deep expertise and then this is sort of where then I would oscillate back to the broad experience, which you, you alluded to, is that I, I think that things become more interesting and more powerful when you then use that deep expertise within uh, areas of broad experience. So, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of background in business and economics and organizational theory, but a lot of the dynamics of, of business aren't really all that particularly interesting to me, or certainly less interesting to me than, let's say, societal dynamics. So to, so to me, it's, it's sort of what does organizational theory, my area of expertise, say to the sort of broad experience of how do societies organize and make decisions and uh, work together? or work against each other. So, so to me, I, I, I find it is, is an oscillation between, uh, you know, having the context that enables you to, to inform where you're going to develop the expertise, and then what's the, the broad aperture in which you can apply that uh, deep expertise. I think the oscillation makes a lot of sense. One thing that, as you were talking, I was just trying to think about how are people in general maybe receive this do you think there's any do you think anyone else thinks about this stuff as much as we think about it do you think we're overthinking it in many ways well so i will say i don't think that anybody could be thinking about it more than we do right at, at there i mean there's a there there's an outside limit we only have 24 hours a day and i know that both you and i have foregone sleep to interrogate deeply these things um, so I, I would say that that the majority of people just by uh, the, the, the mathematics behind this have to be thinking about it less than we are. Do you think that's why uh, our listenership has exploded as of recently? I, I, I think it is. <laughs> I think that they, they love the irony of us overthinking uh, while it, giving the advice to not overthink. Yeah, it's something I've been contemplating is as we're talking about this and we obviously, you know, when we put together the post, the blog, as well as this podcast, we were 
you know, almost telling ourselves not to like the whole, a lot of the point was to tell ourselves don't overthink this and just sort of do it. And so we're sort of putting it out there, but I do think that the things we get into probably, you know, is it can be a bit of a niche space. So I wonder as we're exploring and thinking about these things, you know, there's obviously, I, I find value in doing this is having to chat with you, writing a post. It's just like intrinsic value. It gives me, I think, I think it helps us have better conversations, us better explore things. Do you ever have a desire for this to be bigger than what it is or for more people to accept it? Is there any, like, do you ever get pulled in by thinking like, boy, I'd, I'd love for more people to sort of know this and know my name or know what we're doing? Oh, certainly not. I, I would like for it to stay exactly as obscure as it is, but infinitely more lucrative. So if, if we could find just one patron that is uh, obscenely wealthy and, and we still just banter in obscurity, but make a lot of money, that would be fantastic. I've, I read this uh, post uh, today, uh, not one of ours, but it basically was- So saying, a good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's why we're talking about it because it's much better than what, whatever we do. But it was, it was hitting on that base, making the argument that pop culture is dead. Uh, and that pop culture was like a mass media thing primarily that happened when like t television and radio and those sorts of things made things popular. And because there's only so many channels, right? It was like three channels that you could get stuff on. And so like whatever was there was popular and that created this like pop culture idea. But now there's infinite channels and infinite obscurity and sort of like a reversal back to pre-mass media days. It just made me think of like, uh, for us and what's that mean for finding like an audience of people who enjoy this type of content and the fact that we could even put it out there is interesting. Yeah, I, I tend to, uh, I, I certainly understand the, the demise of pop culture. Um, I see it a lot in the, the sort of diminished role of water cooler discussions where, you know, people would talk about who shot JR from Dallas or uh, skits from Saturday Night Live. And by and large, vast majority of people were watching the same thing and, and had context. And, and that certainly has been fragmented to the point where we really don't know what any of us is watching uh, on YouTube or streaming service or, or who knows what. So um, I, I, I would concur that pop culture is, if not dead, hibernating. It makes me wonder what future business analogy and speak will be. So uh, I think it's, and a lot of times you hear in like leadership analogies and things and business analogies, things about war and sports. And so I was curious if you think that uh, those analogies are overdone or what do you think the future analogies will be when people try to connect and work together on these areas? Especially because you in one of your posts, you mentioned that you should go with the you go to war with the army you have. Curious yes, well. uh, what you think the future looks like there. So, you know, I think I think that war and sports metaphors are compelling and people will use them. I will say I have less concern with sports as a metaphor because most people have direct experience to some form of, of organized sports and, and they can understand the metaphor through direct experience. In the 1950s, when when war metaphors were really prominent in organizations, and also many of the workforce, a large proportion of the workforce had 
direct military experience through World War II, uh, I, I had less concern with the war metaphor be, because they have direct experience that helps them navigate where the metaphor breaks down. Uh, but with the all-volunteer force, I mean, I, I think less than 2% of the U.S. population has any military experience. Um, so the, the compellingness of the war metaphor will probably make it sustain, um, but fewer and fewer people will have direct access to where the metaphor breaks down. And, and I think that that's problematic. I've heard in some places where they try, managers and leaders will try to get away from using sports and uh, war metaphors. And I see them massively struggle to come up with any sort of other analogy. I've seen them try to use fashion. I've seen them try to use other things. And this, uh, it's, it's an interesting struggle. It's like the language that we use is sort of like falling apart as the culture is evolving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, sort of like I did, right? When, when, when I uh, talked about whether it was better to have, you know, broad experience or, or depth, I, I used the education cycle as a metaphor, and and all of us have received um, some some level of compulsory education. So, you know, to me, uh, the education progression is is a viable uh, metaphor because it's accessible to most if not all and you know it's it's one that has i think le legitimacy it, the the key to a metaphor is it needs to convey what we don't know or don't understand in in means uh, that we do um, so you know to me as we become increasingly fragmented as a society the key to good metaphor construction is to look for whatever uh, rapidly diminishing points of sort of universality that exist in our society, e education being one. Would you say that good metaphors are accurate and helpful? Um, I, you know, I, I think that good, I would never frame it that way. So uh, <laughs> I, so, so to answer your question, no, um, I, I don't know what an accurate metaphor is because, you know, by, by the very fact of it being a metaphor, it's not factually true. So, um, you know, you know, by definition, I think, you know, all things that are helpful are good. So that definition of helpful isn't necessarily useful. You, you know, to me, I, I would frame it more like an effective metaphor is one that is engaging and transformative of the way that people think and act. Yeah, I brought up the helpful versus accurate because you wrote a post about um, a four box. You have accurate and inaccurate, helpful and unhelpful. And you wrote about how a lot of analysis might be accurate, but unhelpful. So that's what I was trying to tie tie that together in some quirky way. But I, I agree. I don't know if it exactly works. So I tried not to overthink it, but maybe yes. I did. So, so I think, right, I mean, you, you hit in um, your, cons your comparisons for consideration, something that I think is, is interestingly, interestingly related to this all um, at, a, at a macro level. And you indicated that culture evolves, traditions do not. And I wonder if you could expand upon this for our listeners as it relates to organizations and societies. They always talk about this culture work within organizations. And I don't even know what that means. I think you try to find out what it means. It's really challenging because I think culture just happens. It, just, it is what it is. And it sort of continues to move forward. But I think people confuse it 
with the idea of like, we meet every Tuesday or we always have this offsite or we only go to this place for dinner or every holiday season we do X, Y, Z things. And those are traditions that maybe had some baseline in culture, but they almost by definition, they have to stay, but culture is always a moving, always evolving. You think about workplace organizations that there used to not be any idea of an organization where people could come and work 40 hours and go home. Um, maybe that, and today that's more uh, frequent and who knows what the future brings, if that's more or less, but the culture of being the, the collective understanding or collective way we work or understand each other will continue to evolve and change. But those traditions by definition sort of live in these boxes that they can't move. And I find that some people, this is probably my biggest point about that is some people just live in the traditions thinking that it's culture, but it's just things that you've always done. It's like comfortable, but it's not necessarily where things are today or where things are going because culture kind of just does what it wants to do. So I think traditions is sort of like holding back. You could think of it as like the progressive versus conservative sort of like argument. But that's sort of what I was contemplating and thinking about. And in particular, just thinking about how some organizations are so stuck in doing things always the same way all the time, even though everything around them and the culture, even within the organization is changing and what people believe is changing. And as a result, you get this disconnect between the actions you're doing versus what the direction and beliefs and behaviors of the organization is trying to do. And then I think as a result, you end up in a state of stagnation. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the notion, I like your notion of the, the traditions that organizations perpetuate um, and, and sort of a meta, you know, step above that is, okay, the culture would be, this is a, this is a culture that is traditionalist, right? That, that if, if they are perpetuating and enacting these traditions, then the culture shows a, a reverence for or a willingness to sustain these traditions, which would be uh, different than one that is, you know, iconoclastic or certainly less traditionalist. You know, I, I think when you and I worked together directly uh, previously, our organization had a tradition of cake day. And after you left and I assumed the leadership role, uh, I did away with cake day. So, uh, you know, there's there was a long-standing tradition. And how upset was everyone about Cake Day going away? What was that? How upset was everyone about Cake Day going away? You know, as with anything, uh, it was mixed. There, there's about a third of the workforce for whom Cake Day was uh, an important touchstone of social connection. There was about a third of the workforce who thought getting a cake for somebody and doing all this was a hassle and a distraction from work, and about a third of the workforce didn't care, which is about true of every decision made everywhere all the time. <laughs> I find that I am very, people who are very into traditions annoy me. I'll just, I'll just make a strong statement. And in general, I try to classify why that is, but I think it's just because they're unwilling to accept anything different. And I find that to be annoying personally. That's just me. How about you? So, so I, I will, I, I will say, uh, my my feeling on it is certainly not as extreme as as yours. I, I will say that I make a distinction between um, traditions within a sphere 
of deep personal connection as opposed to traditions in um, largely rhetorical and incidental environments. So, you know, for instance, within, within the confines of family dynamics, traditions can be a, a way of, of connection that, that transcends the generations and, and allows people to feel a, a connection through time and space. Um, but at work, I, I think they're largely um, rhetorical and, and hollow. So I, I don't tend to value them at all in, in sort of their superficial construct. I think in, in deeper areas, um, some forms of tradition can, can be pro-social. Do you think analytics is stuck in or has any traditions? Oh, for sure. I, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about analytics and it's sort of what I would consider to be its two major components that are almost, almost distinct and, and not related to each other. There, there's the technical aspect of analytics, which is, is certainly within the rational empiricist tradition and, and mechanical in its operation. But there's there's a deep philosophical side to analytics and the, the, the things like what are we really trying to measure and how are we going to measure it? And, and what are the limitations of the approximations that we're using to measure something? And, you know, I, you can like, you know, if you were to try to measure friendship or love or agility, right? I mean, these are sort of complex things and, and we're only going to get an approximation of it. So, so to me, the, the one side of analytics, the, the side that is, you know, what are we no kidding really doing and what did we do and, and how far from the mark is it is very questioning. You know, I mean, certainly that's the portion that I reside more in. But the other side is, is important, and it's, it's certainly the essence of analytics as popularly understood. And, and I think that it is very, very much constrained by tradition. The, there's definitely this tradition aspect of how you do the analysis, how you think about data, that sort of stuff, getting stuck in, I think, the weeds on certain things. I, 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 can, give it, I can give an example. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one that I, I really have a hard time wrapping my head around. I've, I've been in multiple dissertation, thesis, paper reviews, where somebody will say, well, you, you can't have research questions and hypothesis tests in the same research. And I'm and you know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, I mean, that's a bizarrely arbitrary thing. I can ask questions that I want to interrogate and also accumulate data and and test them and and do both. I mean, it's it's absolutely easy to do both in the same work. In the in the fact that somebody sometime made this rule that says, in order for the study to be considered legitimate, it can't have both. And then there's people who dogmatically enforce this rule. Se seems to me absurd. I mean, every time I every time I come against it, it's like th this is this is human foolishness at its most glaring because it's within a group that that should be the best able to critique the stupidity of this position. So with all that 
observation and tradition and stuff, you've also made a post saying that it's the best it's ever been for data and analytics. Do you think this is one of the key hurdles? Do you think this is the next phase? Do you get even better? I, I do. I, I think that I, I think that as people sincerely question what they do and why they do it, that we get to progress. That that if if people are honest about, well, I, I'm just doing this because this was the rule I was taught, and and then they say, well, this this seems rather arbitrary. Um, it, it, what, what is the function of this rule? And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like there, there's all sorts of rules that, that pop up that are absurd, like article length, you know, like, oh, the, the article can't be more than 20,000 words. That rule made perfect sense when what you were trying to do was publish a physical journal and have that journal be a certain size. But in an electronic universe, what, what, why couldn't the article be 40,000 words or 140,000 words? I mean, the, the publisher of the journal is not out anything for the extra electrons associated with storing uh, the much longer article than, than the shorter article. It was a constraint of the physical properties of journals when they were in published form that no longer exist, yet the rule perpetuates. So I, I think that if people interrogate those, those rules, and, and not all rules are meaningless, right? I mean, some, some are arbitrary, but, but important, but some are arbitrary and no longer important. And as analytics questions those, I, I hope will overcome them and it'll be even better. As you're describing sort of these artificial rules, it'd be all sort of, you know, we've gone through schooling and have expectations of word length and all kinds of other rules we probably don't even realize. This made me think that this might be the reason why people are so enamored with AI seeming like it's working and it's smart and it's doing what it's doing is, is just because it's following these rules. And if these artificial rules that are made up and they've just been codified in some fashion by the AI, and now it's just spinning it back to us curious like your thoughts on that does that seem do you think it, but it might be the only reason that it even makes sense is because we've established these rules and it's just using these rules against us to make us to trick us into thinking it's doing smart things and thinking yeah i mean i i think you know i, I think the the risk of ai is that it it replicates right i mean it's it's based on the material that it's being trained on the vast majority of material that it's being trained on um, you know, assuming that it's it's just collecting everything and running it is is certainly going to be sexist because it, it, until at least the 90s, uh, everything was written in the masculine voice. He did this, right? So, you know, the, the vast majority of material that it can be trained upon has inherent inequities in it, and the AI will will replicate those inequities. So, and, and, you know, people, people like what is um, accessible, what is familiar. So if it generates things that they like due to familiarity, that, that will inherently sustain the status quo. Yeah, I think some of the, th the best thing we could do sometimes is just ask some of those questions of, is the status quo good? Why am I doing this? Um, and maybe even though this is a don't overthink it, uh, don't overthink this podcast, maybe people should try to at least think a little bit about asking some of these questions about why things are the way they are. 
Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that's great. I mean, to to stomp the foot on that. Don't, don't overthink this does not say don't think, right? <laughs> I mean, we're, I, I would say, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't, I don't typically divulge my personal uh, position on things, but I will. I'm pro-thinking. Yes, I would say I'm pro-thinking as well. And uh, I think that wraps it up for today. Dr. Axe, it's great chatting with you. Everyone else out there, if you enjoyed this podcast and you enjoy thinking about things, please feel free to like uh, and follow us and share this with others. Also, feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net where we write posts almost every day, if not multiple times a day. And we look forward to chatting with you later. Dr. Jackson, it was great chatting with you. Any final words? Always a pleasure, Dr. E. Thanks, everyone.